Good to be with you this morning. Glad that you are here. If you're here in the auditorium, way to go. Glad you hit. Glad you made it. Glad you got up this morning and came to church. If you're, if you're joining us online, way to go. Glad that you're here. Um, I appreciated George's prayer this morning as we began. So much going on in the world. So many of our family that are they're sick and struggling. And then you look at the storm that's bearing down, and we've got some connections there as well. Uh, we all know what, uh, what those storms are like, and we've got some people that we love that are they're in the path of that thing, and then you think about what's going on in Afghanistan, and where could we go but to God, uh, situations like that. So, so keep praying about all those things. Um, also an exciting day, it's, it's Bible Sunday. That's, um, that's an opportunity that we have. And if you're online with it, it's an opportunity that you have. Every penny that we collect today is going to go towards putting Bibles in the hands of people that need God's Word. Supporting our missionaries, and these are, these are men and women that we know personally, that we have connections with. So take advantage of the opportunity to go online and click on that uh, link that will help you to, to know how to do that and, uh, and be a blessing. So, lots of good things going on. I want to start with a story that I heard about a sixth grade teacher who was challenging her math class one day with a math situation. She said, a very wealthy man passes away and he leaves $10 million. One-fifth of it he leaves to his wife. One-fifth he leaves to his son. One-sixth he leaves to his butler. And the rest goes to charity. What does each get? There's a long silence. A little boy in the back finally raised his hand and said, A lawyer? <laughs> Which is about right, isn't it? You know, that's about right. Uh, you know, how do you decide what to do with what's left to you? How do you, how do you decide how to manage what you've been entrusted with? Because sometimes it can be pretty complicated and it can get pretty confusing. We're spending some time kind of focusing on that uh, 242 focus that we have here at Bay Area, referring to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where the author Luke gives us a glimpse of what those first Christians, how they lived their life. And we keep coming back to that chapter and that verse. Uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And you read that verse, and the rest of those verses, you know, toward the end of that chapter, verses 42 through 47, and it sounds like such an exciting time to be a follower of Jesus, doesn't it? And it was. And it sounds like such a great model for us to emulate. And it is. Everyone was filled with awe, Luke tells us. The believers were all together. They had everything in common. They gave to one another as anyone had need. They, they met together. They broke bread together. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God together. What an exciting time to be a follower of Jesus. And you read the end of Acts chapter 2, and it's easy to sort of get the, uh, the notion that, wow, that must have been so easy. It must have been so easy for those people just to buy into this Jesus thing and you know, just jump on board and it's just you know, handshakes, hugs, and high fives. What a, what a fun time that would have been, like a 
hippie commune from the 60s. You know, everything's great. But I want you to remember in Acts chapter 2, Jesus is gone. He's not there anymore. Rome is still in control. The same force that put Jesus on a cross is very much in charge. The religious leaders still had tremendous leverage over the people. The Sanhedrin was still the ruling body as far as the Jews were concerned. The Pharisees still opposed anybody who claimed Jesus to be the Messiah. Yeah, it was an exciting time to be a follower of Jesus, but it would have been a very uncertain time as well. Now, you think about the apprehension that those people would have been faced with. Now, what's going to happen next? What's next? What's Rome going to do next? What are the Jews going to do next? I mean, Jesus was here. We saw Jesus do amazing things. That was great. But then he was arrested and he was put on a cross and that was confusing. But then like a couple days later, he's back alive again, which was really confusing. But we know that it happened because so many people saw him. And then not too long after that, apparently he goes back up into the clouds, back up to heaven, which is incredibly confusing. And then there was the day of Pentecost where the apostles were teaching and preaching in in different tongues. And then we get here. Now, here we are now at the end of Acts chapter 2. What's next? What's going to happen next? I wonder if those first Jesus followers that we keep referring back to in Acts chapter 2, I wonder if they were given the book of Acts and said, read the rest of this. You're living in chapter 2. Go ahead and read the rest of it. I wonder if they could get a glimpse of what really was next. I wonder how prepared they would feel for what's next. I wonder how excited they would be for what was next. And I'm sure they would have felt very inadequate and a little bit confused, probably somewhat fearful, and yet I'm convinced that even though they probably might have felt a little bit um, limited, I'm convinced they knew they served a God that was limitless because of what they were devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This morning, I want to stay with our 242 focus, and I want to specifically look at a section of the apostles' teaching as it relates to prayer. If you were in Paul's class this morning... Um, I was in the lobby, and I was listening to Paul's class. Last week, I kind of joked about, boy, Paul was like preaching my sermon in his class. Paul said today, I'm, I'm sitting in the, in the lobby, and he says, well, I want you to we're gonna talk about prayer. The Apostle Paul preaches or prays a prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm like, really? Are you kidding me? Uh, so if you were blessed enough to be in Paul's class, if you weren't, go online, check it out. Um, this, I guess, is kind of part two. But I want to take a look at the apostle who by his own omission was born at the wrong time, the apostle Paul, one of his prayers, one of some of his teaching that is found in that prayer that I think is really incredibly practical. Uh, It's in Ephesians chapter 1. 
Paul will write this letter to Christians living in and around Ephesus about 30 years after the events of Acts chapter 2 have taken place. So, to a certain extent, what was going to be next for those very first followers of Jesus has already happened. But I want to read through this prayer, and then we're going to come back to parts of it. Um, Matt, if you would just advance that for me uh, as I go. I've got it on several slides there. But it's going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This is Paul's prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul has an awful lot to say in that prayer, but one of the things that the apostle stresses here is the need for knowledge. You know, all through the ages, mankind has kind of stressed the need for knowledge. And if you look back for really through through history, all the deep thinkers, all the philosophers, you know, then and, and even now, if you could condense everything they say about knowledge, you might be able to condense it and boil it down to the phrase, know thyself. From Socrates to Dr. Phil, that's kind of the message. You need to know yourself. You need to dig down deep and know the real you. That is not Paul's message in this prayer. Paul's message isn't you need to know yourself. Paul's message is you need to know God. You need to dig down deep and know the real God. You need to know God through His Son, Jesus. By the way, Jesus agrees with Paul's prayer. Uh, In Jesus' prayer, in John chapter 17, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life. By the way, when the Son of God prefaces His statement by saying, This is eternal life, we ought to pay attention, right? Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I think one of the reasons why so many Christians find themselves in kind of a stunted Christianity is because we've allowed ourselves to settle for just a a shallow and a superficial knowledge of God. We've allowed ourselves to be comfortable with knowing just a little bit about God. Ray Steadman tells a story in one of his books about a a school district that was going to um, promote one of their teachers to a much higher paying position. 
And one of the teachers that applied for that position had been with the school district for 20 years, but the job didn't go to her. It went to a much younger teacher who didn't have nearly as much teaching experience. And this older woman was pretty upset about that. And she went to see the principal, and she said, I should have been hired for that position. I have 20 years teaching experience. And her principal said, no, you don't. You have one year experience, and you've done it 20 times. And of course, what he's saying is that that woman hadn't grown any. She hadn't developed her skills. She was no better a teacher today than she was 20 years ago. She was comfortable where she started, and that's pretty much where she stayed. You know any Christians like that? You know any Christians who have... They've been followers of Jesus for 5, 10, maybe 20 years. And they're no deeper in their knowledge or their understanding of God than they were when they began their journey. They don't know God any better than they did when they started. They were comfortable with their knowledge then and they never attempted a deeper, more meaningful understanding of or a relationship with God. Look again what Paul says, what Paul prays in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I'm telling you, Paul was such a great writer. I know the Holy Spirit's involved here, but Paul was such a wordsmith. He is such a great writer. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul's prayer is that our eyes of our heart would be opened so that we can see and know God better. Here's the deal. You're never going to grow until you know. It just doesn't happen. We're not going to grow until we know. We're not going to get better until we dig deeper. Growing involves knowing. You're never going to grow your faith in God without knowing God. It's our greatest need. I don't know what you thought your greatest need was this morning when you got out of bed. Maybe you thought, my greatest need's a better job. My greatest need is a, a better body, you know, better health. My greatest need is a better financial outlook. My greatest need is, you know, something to do with my relationships, and my kids, or my wife, or my husband. Yes, those are legitimate needs, but I'm going to tell you, that is not your greatest need. Your greatest need is the same as my greatest need. We need to know God better. That is our greatest need. We need to know God better than we know Him right now. I've got a poster hanging in my office. If you've ever been in my office, you have seen this poster. It's a picture of Albert Einstein with Einstein's quote, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. It's hanging right over my desk. I love that, that, uh, that thought. I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. And I'm not so arrogant as to suggest that me or anybody else can understand the mind of God but I do want to know God better. Paul is so convinced of this need that we need to know God better. It drives him to his knees. Paul's not trying to give us some kind of fatherly advice here. He's not saying, I'm just throwing this out for you. This is, you know, it's worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Try it. Here's an option. It's not what Paul's doing. Paul gets on his knees And he prays to God that the eyes of our heart 
might be opened. And by the way, this isn't the first time that Paul will pray this, and it won't be the last. Study sometime the prayers of Paul. It's a really neat study, very interesting, the prayers that Paul prayed. And I thought about this, and I tried to do some research, and I might be wrong, and if I am, I'm sure somebody will tell me, but I couldn't find a single time when the Apostle Paul ever prayed for material health or prosperity. With the exception of he did pray for God to remove the thorn in his flesh, but that was just so he could do a better job at sharing the gospel. Paul's consistent prayer is always for spiritual growth and for wisdom. Back up to verse 17 of Ephesians 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know him better. Paul says, I want God to give you the, 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 the gift of the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then Paul would write this in Colossians chapter 1. So we have continued praying for you ever since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you a complete understanding of what he wants to do in your lives. And we ask him to make you wise with spiritual wisdom. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and you'll continually do good, kind things for others, all the while you will learn to know God better and better. All the while you will learn to know God better and better. That was Paul's consistent prayer. I hope you're praying that as well. Now there's a certain level of appreciating and knowing God that only comes on our knees. It only comes when we humble ourselves before the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to to speak to us and work through us, to open the eyes of our heart as we go deeper into the understanding of God. And what exactly happens next then? If that's Paul's prayer, if that's our prayer, that God opens the eyes of our heart, what's next? What can we expect to happen when God begins to open the eyes of our heart? What are we going to know? What are the kind of of things that we're going to be sure of? Let me share with you a couple thoughts. Pretty simple, but I think pretty significant. I'm going to stay right in Ephesians chapter 1. First, Paul wants us to know that, that we have a hope that is unbelievable. When the eyes of our heart are enlightened... We're going to find, we're going to discover a hope that is unbelievable. I had the first half of verse 18 on the screen. Let me me put the rest of that verse on there. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Growth in the knowledge of God is going to enable us to know the hope to which God has called you. And when Paul is talking about hope here, he's not talking about some pie-in-the-sky wish list. He is talking about this unbelievable assurance, this promise that we have. He's talking about the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Romans 15, 13, another one of Paul's prayers, by the way. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This hope isn't just a hope for the future someday, although God provides that as well. This is a hope for life right now. 
This is a hope for leverage over life right now when we all know how hard life is right now. This is Holy Spirit-inspired hope. Apostle Peter would call it a living hope. When you grow in your knowledge of God, when God begins to open the eyes of your heart, you're going to have a hope that is unbelievable. And then in Christ, we also can expect a power that is incomparable. When God begins to open the eyes of our heart, what's next? We're going to know when we're going to appreciate a power that is incomparable. Back to verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. We need to know we need to grow in our, our knowledge of God, the power of God. Because Satan is trying to convince you that you are spiritually weak. And Satan wants you to believe that you will always be spiritually weak. Remember that old line, the devil made me do it? It's not biblical. The devil can't make you do anything. Now he can tempt you. And he can lie to you. And he can deceive you. But the devil can't make you do anything. And one of the things that the devil is going to try to deceive you of is whatever that problem is that you're stuck in, whatever that, that addiction is that you're struggling with, whatever that sin is that just it doesn't go away, it's never going to go away. That's Satan's message. You're always going to wrestle with that. You're never going to be better. You're never going to get past it. It's always going to be there. And listen, that's a lie. That is a lie of Satan because we have a power that's incomparable. Look again at verses 19 and 20. What kind of power is available to Christians? That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. What kind of power is available to you as a follower of Jesus? Resurrection power. Paul would say in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of His rising. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. The more we get to know God, the more we're going to realize that we have a power that is incomparable. God never intended for you to be a 97-pound spiritual weakling. In the days of Satan kicking sand in your face, those days are over. Because we have a power that's incomparable. And by the way, you don't need to worry about the defeated powers ever coming back and, and uh, uh, staging a coup. Because when we grow deep in our knowledge of God, here's another thing we're going to know. We're going to know that we have an authority in Christ that is uncontestable. His authority is uncontestable. And I'm pretty sure it's a word, by the way. <laughs> I looked it up. Christ's authority is uncontestable. Back to verse 19. The power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 
when God opens the eyes of your heart, you are going to know today what all of mankind will know someday. Jesus is Lord. When God opens the eyes of your heart, you are going to know that Jesus is Lord. His reign will never be undermined. His reign will never be outranked. His reign will never be overthrown. And what that means is the only power, the only influence that Satan has over you right now is the influence that you allow Satan to have over you right now because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Satan threw everything he had at Jesus and it wasn't enough. The power of hell wasn't enough. Jesus' authority is uncontestable. I don't know what's over your head right now. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I will tell you, whatever is over your head, it's under Jesus' feet. Because He's Lord. And then one more thing that we're going to know when we grow deep in our knowledge of God, and this is so great. We have a potential that is unimaginable. Our potential in Christ is unimaginable. Our vision, our our mission is rooted in the knowledge of God, in the Lordship of Jesus. And that knowledge is going to guard us against this temptation to kind of settle for mediocrity. It's going to keep us from phoning it in. Verse 22 of Ephesians 1. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Remember when Jesus was just getting ready to ascend back to the Father? Uh, the, the apostles were there and He told them, I want you to go everywhere. I want you to go everywhere and tell people about Me. I want you to go tell people that don't know anything about Me, about Me. I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then I want, to teach, I want you to teach him everything. But before Jesus gave that great commission, remember what he told those men? All authority has been given me. All authority has been given to me. What does that mean? It means we're the church of Jesus Christ, and we don't live in fear. And we don't live in timidity. We should be acting boldly in the name of Jesus, attempting great things, because we know God. And our potential is unimaginable. You know, the Bible says that the church of Jesus Christ is built on a rock. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Bible says that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church that Jesus established. God forbid that we should cower in fear before the big bad world. The big bad world ought to be cowering in fear before God's great church. Our potential is unimaginable when we know God. So, no wonder. It is no wonder that Paul prayed, open the eyes of our heart. Open our eyes to a hope that is unbelievable to a power that is incomparable, an authority that is uncontestable. And God, would you open our eyes to a potential that is unimaginable? That's what you need to know today. That's our greatest need. Again, I don't know what you think your greatest need is. I don't know what you think your problem is today. 
But I'm telling you, it's not your job. It's not your family. It's not your neighbor. Your greatest problem is you don't know God well enough. It's the same as my greatest problem. I don't know God well enough. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God desperately wants us to know him better. He desperately wants us to know him better. God has done everything he can so that we can know him better. That's why Jesus came. He came to reveal the Father to us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The bad news is, I don't know God well enough. The good news is, boy, God really wants me to know him. God doesn't want us to plateau in our knowledge of him. He doesn't want us to plateau in our worship of him. He doesn't want us to plateau in our love for him and our obedience God is calling us to know him better. And that's the part of the apostles' teaching that those early Christians were devoted to. They were devoted to that. They were devoted to that teaching. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and fellowship. They were devoted to prayer. Next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about prayer. But I'll end this morning by just asking, what are we devoted to? And how devoted are we? We devoted to the same things, the same truths, the same challenges that those people that we read about in all that chaos and all that confusion, all that uncertainty in Acts chapter 2, they made the decision while they were living a really hard time, in a really hard time, and they had a lot of uh, challenges, they made a decision to be devoted to those things. My prayer is that we make that same decision to be devoted to those same things as well. Dave's got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement. If you're online with us, uh, there'll be a place where you can uh, uh, get in touch and ask for prayers. If you're here in the auditorium, uh, there'll be somebody here at the front of the auditorium. I'll be at the front of the auditorium. And if we can pray for you as a church family, uh, we're happy and, and honored to do that. Let's go ahead and be standing. We'll sing.